Amen. If you will, turn in your Bibles along with me to 1 John. We will be in chapter 2 as we continue this study. And before we read God's Word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Oh Lord, you are great and glorious. And uh, Lord, we confess ourselves to be needy and poor and empty-handed. Lord, we find ourselves hurting and suffering, oftentimes disappointed. Lord, we find ourselves with a range of emotions and experiences. And we need to hear from you. We need to hear your word. And so that, Lord, we pray that you would, by your spirit, illumine your word, that we would behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. That you would, almighty God, you who have spoke into nothing and created the universes, you who said, let there be light, and there was light, would you speak into the dark hearts of those that are outside of Christ? And may there be light in life. May they behold Jesus as the only Savior. For those that are hurting, Lord, we pray that your word would speak life and healing. Lord, would you make our hearts and minds receptive? We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. So would you grant us that sweet gift of faith today? Lord, I do pray for Logan. Would you guard his precious heart against the wiles of the evil one and those fiery darts? We pray that you would be pleased to reflect and to turn all of those fiery darts away Satan who would love to destroy him would you turn those away for your own glory keep him and strengthen him by your Holy Spirit Lord I pray for the saint that has even witnessed another tes testimony of grace this morning and watched Logan's baptism but they themselves have been struggling with doubt, frustrated by the cares of this world, and ready to make shipwreck of the faith. Lord, would you encourage their hearts in the obedience of a young man who was willing to follow Christ's example? that they too would continue on and press on to the very end. And the display that's been made that Christ is our Red Sea, 
and that the evil and the snares of the devil will not pass. But they landed the curse, the vileness, the wrath of God itself landed upon our Savior, and he carries us safely through those waters of judgment. May all of our hearts be set upon Christ. Lord, as we consider today the, our relationship with the world, I pray, first off, that we would be honest. Lord, that we would leave all false piety at the door and we would recognize the temptations that come to our own hearts and the sins that so easily beset us. And our need for your great grace. Teach us. Instruct us, we pray. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus, who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. The mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen. 2023, soon to be 2024, where do we stand? What path do we go? What are we called to do? Should we just pull out of the world, head off into our monasteries, our cloisters, separate ourselves in that way? Are we called to renounce the world? Or are we called to embrace the world? What does it look like? Our world is marked by idols, idols of power, of wealth, of sensuality, idols of artistic freedom, idols of entertainment, a world in which anything goes. But what about the church? Should we be different? Or are we marked by the same idols that the world has? Well, Joel Osteen says, we're all about building people up. We're all about helping people reach their full potential. We don't push some kind of religion. All we push is joy and peace and victory through Jesus Christ. Our message every single week is through faith in God, you can live an overcoming life of victory. And you say, well, that sounds okay. Maybe at first. And then you see some sermon titles like holding on to your dreams, 
financial prosperity, developing miracle working faith, developing your potential. In other words, embracing the world. Or Joyce Myers, her book, Prepare to Prosper, How to Experience the Power and Prosperity of God in Your Life. In other words, embrace the world. Or Kenneth Hagin, who claims that the Lord spoke to him in a vision in 1959 and said these words, If you will learn to follow that inward witness, I will make you rich. I will guide you in all affairs of life, financial as well as spiritual. And he claims that Christ told him, Claim whatever you want. Claim whatever you want. Well, what are we called to do? Embrace the world or renounce the world? John is writing this letter. He's an old man now. He's writing to his spiritual children. He's writing, remember, to make their joy complete. He wants to build up their faith. He wants to warn them against antichrist and false teaching. And he's deeply concerned about these precious believers. There's two fundamental problems that's being addressed. There's theological problems and there's ethical problems. There are theological problems with what this being taught, these false teachers. They deny the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They argue that all matter, matter is evil. And so Jesus couldn't really have been a man because that would have meant taking on flesh, and flesh is evil. So he had to just appear to be a man. It would have been impossible for him to be fully man and fully God because matter is evil. And then from that flows the ethical problem. If, it doesn't, if uh, Jesus isn't man and uh, if uh, all, matter, all matter is evil, then guess what? It doesn't matter how you live if the goal of your life is ultimately to escape this material world. So they're not looking for a new heaven and a new earth. They're not looking for resurrected bodies. Their goal, to escape this world. And so if that's the goal, it doesn't matter how you live here and now. And so John has given them three tests. And we've seen, walked through these before. A moral test, a social test, and a doctrinal test. He's working through those three tests. And so today... I want us to pick up right where he is and right where we left off previously. The Christian's attitude toward the world. He is, in this context, the social text, uh, the social test that's going on. So how should we relate to the world? Well, we're going to do this this morning by defining two words and then looking at three marks. Two words, three marks. Alright? First word. What does he mean when he says world? Do not love the world or things of the world. What does he mean when he uses the word world? Well, the New Testament refers to the world 
in different ways. He uses that word in different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it means the earth or the universe. For example, Matthew 16, verse 26 says, For what will a man profit if he gains the whole world, the whole universe, the whole created order, and forfeits his own soul? So sometimes that word world is used that way. Another way that it's used. Sometimes the word world can mean the inhabited earth, or human beings, or uh, a section of the inhabited earth. For example, John 3.16, right? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the inhabited world that's being addressed there. Thirdly, the New Testament sometimes talks about and uses the word world just to mean age or uh, time period. So when Jesus, the call to worship this morning, I'm with you even to the end of the world, even to the end of the age, that time period, right? It's got a beginning, it's got an ending. Matthew 13, 22 says, And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns... This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world, this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, they choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So it's this age or this time period. But the fourth way that that word world is used in the New Testament is what we see here in the, John's use in these verses. It's evil men over against God, or evil systems over against God. It's the sum total of human life, human culture, uh, the ordered world considered apart from, alienated from, hostile to Almighty God, with Satan as its head. You see this, and we'll see it again in this letter. So in chapter 3, verse 1, Look at that. He says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Chapter 3, verse 13. Just look down a few more verses. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. Or in chapter 5, verse 19 of the same book. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So for John, there's this sharp dichotomy, isn't it? Between light and darkness, truth and falsehood, love and hate, love of the Father and love of the world. It's this sharp dichotomy, and one cannot profess to be a Christian. One cannot be a Christian and habitually, continually, time after time, invest his time, her time, her effort, his effort, their energies into the things of this world, the things that are hostile to Christ, hostile to the gospel. This is black and white. So that's the first word, world. 
the second word that we want to define. What does John mean by love? As opposed to our culture that says love is love, well, that tells you nothing. What does John mean when he says love? Well, he's referring to a fondness and an affection for an object because of its value. It's, uh, it, maybe it's an appetite, a desire, something that I take pleasure in. Something that I set my heart upon. I'm emotionally, physically, spiritually invested in this thing. It's where I get my comfort. It's where I get my hope. It's where I get my security. It's not really about things in and of themselves, but it's our attitude toward things. So what is the ruling principle of your life? What drives your deepest thoughts of your heart? You, you know, remember the Lord of the Rings? And you've read it or you've seen it. You, the one character that always stands out is Gollum. And remember, it's, even though Gollum says it a lot, any time the temptation of the ring sets upon someone, they always refer to it as the precious. The precious. What is it then? To, what is it that drives us in that direction? What do we find precious? What is it about this world that I love? What do I find precious? in my heart. Well, those are the two words that we define. And then he gives us three marks to identify whether or not I'm loving the world or not. Whether or not I am finding uh, this world that is hostile to God as a precious thing, and I cherish it in my heart. He gives us three marks. You see that? Now, this isn't a comprehensive list. This is just three things, all right? But they are three things. There are three characteristics that show I am infatuated with the world, a world that's hostile to God, a world that hates the gospel. What's the first mark? It's a lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh. Appetites. We think bodily, right? We think sensual sin, lust of the flesh. But by this, John does not just mean flesh, right? He's not giving in to these proto-gnostics that say, oh, no, everything matter, that's evil. He's not giving in to them. He's not doing that. He's not saying that matter is sinful. This phrase is referring to any and every desire of man, Man in rebellion against God, the things of this world, all that panders to my desires, my appetites, lust of the flesh. You know, some of you are perhaps dog people, and I don't mean house baby dogs, I mean real dogs that get out and run and uh, 
One of the marks of a dog is they like to find dead things and to roll in it. You ever, why, right? What is it? It's because their nature tells them to do that. It's something in their instinct that says, I need to find something dead and roll in it. It's their deepest desire. Even though they might not be sure why, but they've got some foggy idea that if I find something dead and I roll in it, it will mask my scent and I will be able to prey upon something. And friends, that hits close to home for us. How often do I live my life looking for something to, dead to roll over in, to cover my tracks, and to cover what my deepest desires really are? What is it that I have set my appetites upon and I try to cover them and hide them? How do you direct your appetites? That one small taste. And then it leads to being controlled by lust. And it leads to idols and making idols out of the good things even. Ordinary pleasures are destroyed. Good things are betrayed and made idols in our own hearts. John's saying you cannot live like that and be a Christian. You can't continue in that. And live that way and claim to love the Father. Now we know, right? Some people are controlled by their desires, by their appetites, by what they see as precious. The th and those very things will ultimately destroy them. In Cincinnati, we had a friend who's in youth ministry, and he many ways loved the Lord, but he did become enamored with, with the glory and the tension and the pride and the affection that was poured on him by children. And he gives way to those desires, and now he's out of ministry completely. Well, what does it look like? What does it mean what does what you have an appetite reveal about who you are and about who you love what are those your desires what does it say about you and about who you love lust of the flesh look at the second mark the lust of the eyes so what a person sees, lust, it's triggered by sight, uh, the seductive lure of things. In the book, Post-Christian Mind, it's a great comment. Just, so he says, current secularist humanism, a mishmash of relativistic notions, Negating traditional values, absolutes. It infects the intellectual air we breathe. There is a campaign to undermine all human acknowledgement of the transcendent. To whittle away all human respect for objective restraints. 
on the individual self. And this campaign, this war that's going on, is visual. And it's before our eyes all the time. Constant. Not only in things we read, but in things we see. You say, well, I'm a visual learner. Some people, it's helpful, but there are also dangers to that. Postmodern dangers that removes absolutes and becomes what you interpret it to be. You can be taken in by what C.S. Lewis says, the sweet poison of a false infinite, because it looks so good, but it'll kill you. It looks eternal, it looks lasting, it looks satisfying, but it's going to end and it's going to pass away. It leads to a, well, I need these things that I don't need kind of mentality. I find myself here all the time, right? Honey, I really do need that 4D TV because Virginia Cavalier basketball just won't be the same. I need it, but I don't really need it. I won't really be a fan unless I'm this kind of fan. Or you've been on mission trips this last year. Maybe there's this temptation. How can a, civil, how can a culture even be civilized if it doesn't have a Walmart? That's how we view we, this elevated because we see and it's all there and everything's accessible to us right away. And it infects us in our thinking, in our beliefs, in our hearts. One of the saddest manifestations of this is, of course, when we respond to maybe a brother, sister in Christ, or maybe a family member, and, and they're blessed. Maybe they're blessed materially. Things that you can see, and the first response is, why them? Why them? Why not me? And this happens not just out of the blue. It happens because we're bombarded with advertising. We're bombarded with uh, painted pictures that are not true of what we deserve and what we... It feeds our desires. Surfing the Internet. Pornography. Those lusts that are triggered by sight, they're always, friends, listen to me, it's always deceptive. Even if you think no one knows about this, it's deceptive and it will never produce what it offers to you. It will never produce satisfaction or true gratification. And it will destroy you. It will not get, bring life. It will not satisfy. It will destroy you. And there are people, right, they're abusing all sorts of these things, pornography. They're abusing uh, it, sometimes even good gifts of beauty. Maybe they find security in those things. 
And so we have to ask this question, what does what I look like, look at, tell me, and reveal about myself? What is it that I love to look at? What does that tell me about who I am and who I love? What does what you look like, look at? And how you look at it reveal about who you are and who you love. The third mark, that boastful pride of life. It's this outward show, right? This outward display as my security. Who I am, there's my security, who I am. I, my own power, my own gifts, my own talents. My, we are like the Pharisee, right? who prays, Lord, I thank you I'm not like those people. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that. That's the pride of life. How often we're tempted for it. We find our security in our own self-sufficiency, in my own independence, in possessions in external circumstances. I am, I need no one or no, th no other thing. If I am true to myself, that's the message of the world. If you are true to yourself, there's nothing you cannot do. But that's a lie. You know the poem Ozymandias by Percy Shelley? I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, a half-sunk and shattered visage lies, whose a frown and a wrinkled lip and a sneer cold of command. Tell that its sculptor, well those passions read, which yet survive and stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing else remains. The sands spread out far and wide. Here is this colossal wreck of what once was a great and mighty statue of a great and mighty ruler. And now it's neglected and it's lifeless. It's a broken statue. It, it's strewn into pieces across the desert. It once said, look on my works and despair. Look at my power. Look at, my look at me. But that's not the biblical worldview. Biblical worldview says, Proverbs 8:13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance in the evil way. Proverbs 16:18 says, pride goes before the destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 29:23 says, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Friends, what does what you find security in reveal about who you are and about what you love. 
What's really important in life to you? What is really important? What do you have an appetite for? What do you desire? Where do you find your security? What do you look at? How do you look at it? How do you do that? Do you love things that are actually hurting you? Do you have an appetite for things that are destroying you? Do you love the world? John says this world is passing away. The one who does the will of God, he abides forever. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, you are great and glorious. May you grant by your spirit that we would examine our own hearts. Lord, what do we see there? Is it the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life? If so, let us turn and fight. Lord, we cannot say we love the things of this world and you. And we cannot say we love you while maintaining a love of things of this world. So, Lord, may we turn wholeheartedly to you. For this world is passing away along with all of its desires. They will not endure they are but painted beauties that are underneath full of decay. Lord, let us see them for what they are. And let us see Christ in all of his beauty. And let our love be attached there. And let our desires and satisfactions flow from the gospel. And Lord, may we be committed to thy will and to abide in Christ, forsaking all others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.